Hi there, and welcome to a new episode of Impact Talks. Today we have a good friend of mine, Ryan, who I've known for years. He's an entrepreneur who started a business, sold a business, and has done many things in between. Ryan, please introduce yourself to everybody else. Hey, I'm Ryan Tripp. Uh, as Love said, started a business called LTX Solutions a few years ago. Um, sold that about a year and a half ago uh, to a private equity company out of New York and uh, partnered with a company called Redwood Logistics that I'm work, working with now. And I've also started a couple other uh, companies as well, you know, in the accounting and finance space, as well as the, the real estate market. But yeah, excited to, uh, excited to be here, Lovin. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So uh, last time we've seen each other was in Barcelona. What have you been up to since then? Yeah, actually, I, actually, I think the last time we saw each other was uh, last summer in, in Amsterdam. Last in summer Ireland. was in, uh, no, last summer was been pandemic, man. We haven't traveled oh, yeah, for yeah, two years. <laughs> summer, uh, summer of 2019, right? Yeah, pandemic has been going on for a year and a half now. Crazy. <laughs> it goes fast, huh? Yeah. How, how was the whole thing for you? Like, have you been affected too much? No, it's fine. Um, I mean, we went down, uh, kind of rode out the pandemic for the, the most part down on the island in the, in the Gulf of Mexico, kind of working there. We moved our entire team uh, remote. Um, what is your team now? Because you sold your startup. So what do you do now? Yeah, well, uh, we, we sold the startup. We, so we, we started our company in 2016. Right, we kind of pivoted away from the traditional full truckload brokerage model, uh, heavy assets, warehousing, and kind of went the, the tech heavy, the tech forward, um, new age. You know, logistics is kind of one of the last frontiers uh, where the technology revolution is just now occurring. And so we kind of got on the forefront of that when started a company called LTX Solutions, which was in the, uh, what's called the less than truckload market, right? So if you're not familiar with uh, the different types of freight you kind of have, you know, your parcel, which is you know your FedEx and your UPS and your DHL, and uh, from there you have less than truckload, which is kind of the next step up, right? You're putting it on a pallet, you're wrapping it, you're sitting on a truck, but you don't have enough to fill up an entire truckload, and so that's kind of where we played in our space. We implemented technology, uh, you know, partnered with big time manufacturers, and really grew that space from a, a, a tech centric perspective. Um, so we started that in 2016, sold it in 2019. Um, but you know, it's kind of one of those things where, you know, we're, we were both so, um, my partner and I were both so intrinsic to the business, right? We're so involved in the business. Uh, it, it wasn't like a, Hey, you sell this and you walk away, right? We, we were looking for partners where we could take it to the next level and be a something, be a part of something bigger. All right. So we, we found a group in Chicago, Illinois, you know, backed by private equity partners in New York that came in and, uh, and purchased it in a full equity deal. So now we, we're part of the, the new machine. So, Do you then work as employees or shareholders? It's, it's both, right? So shareholders and we also work in the business. So, so right now, what is your role exactly? What's the title? Right. So I'm the senior vice president of financial planning and analysis, right? So, you know, we're in the process. We've gone, you know, Redwood has gone from a company in 2017 that, you know, had maybe 250 to $300 million in revenue. 
right? And so since that time, we've gone through five acquisitions, right? We're managing a little over two and a half billion dollars in freight. And so it's just been tremendous growth. And so kind of what I've been doing over the past you know, year, year and a half and going forward is, you know, helping build out the finance and the back end um, of the company to, to scale, right? Because, you know, ultimately our goal is to sell again. How did you, okay, so we've had many conversations and uh, I think I've never really asked you or we kind of had it really shortly uh, where I asked you, like, how did you come up with the idea? Because I think you were already doing something in the space and then you and your partner came up with it. Can you give like the full story of how you came up with the idea, how you decided to, I think you had a job, leave it and start this thing? Yeah, so I was uh, fortunate and blessed uh, with, a, with a partner who grew up and, you know, from the very young age in the logistics space, right? His, you know, his father, who was one of our, one of our board members and initial investors, um, you know, grew up in freight, you know, went to school in freight <laughs> and uh, he actually, you know, actually got his, you know, university degree, you know, in, in logistics and supply chain, which, you know, wasn't, you know, not everybody was doing that. There wasn't a lot of programs, you know, back in the seventies, you know, that were teaching supply chain. Uh, so he worked in freight his whole life. You know, my partner Adam, when he was a kid, you know, if he wanted to see his dad, right, he went down to the docks, right? So, you know, spending the summer sweeping, sweeping the docks and, and kind of learning the ropes. Um, and then when uh, his dad, the company he's working for, is called Carolina Freight, sold to ABF, ABF Freight back in the 90s, when he started his own warehousing and trucking company, all full truckload um, warehousing, actual physical trucks, moving it around. And so Adam kind of got his, you know, MBA in freight, you know, from a very young age. So when he came to me, he was working with his dad when he came to me and said, hey, you know, like, I, I just can't do this full truckload warehousing anymore, right? I'm pivoting. And I want to focus into, I want to go a completely new direction, basically a completely new company um, and go into this LTL space, right? And would I be interested in coming and joining and building it with him? And so, you know, my background was accounting and finance, um, worked with, you know, Coke Industries for five or six years, you know, really getting immersed in their business philosophy and kind of how they make money. And so we came in, partnered up and, uh, yeah. How old were you at the time and how old was uh, Adam, your partner, I think? Yeah, so Adam, yeah, so I was 28 and Adam was uh, 32. So, so you... Uh, clo- you sold the business three years later, so you were 31 and he was 35. It's mm-hmm. a good way to close and uh, start your 30s. <laughs> um, <laughs> what was the philosophy? So from all of our conversations, I think for our audience, the most relevant thing um, was that I've learned from you mostly was that experience you had before the company that I think really set the tone of how you created the culture within the startup. I remember in the early years you were telling me about that. So what is it that you learned exactly before the startup? Um, what are these business philosophies that set the tone in your startup? Sure, yeah, so uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Coke Industries or you know Charles Coke and the late David Coke, right? So you know, they, they built their company, um, not, not necessarily from the ground up. You know, I think Charles, uh, 
took over his dad's company. It was valued around $20 million at the time. And then over the next 40, 50 years, he's grown it to, you know, an enterprise worth well over $100 billion. Um, and so, you know, kind of the, the results are there for him. And he kind of attributes that to what he calls uh, market-based management or MBM philosophy. And so it's one of the one of the really good things about working, you know, in a co-company is you get exposed to this philosophy, right? And it's basically the the secret sauce that he credits all of his success to. And a lot of it is centered around uh, employees and culture, right? But also, you know, how do you, you know, align incentives, or right? how do you share knowledge, those type of things, and how do you create the systems and the processes to do that effectively at scale, right? Because it's 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 easier. When you're a small company and you've got four or five folks, it's very easier to transfer knowledge to those people, right? But when you start getting much larger, right, even to 10, 12, 15, you know, 80, right? And then overnight you're 1,200 employees. Like, how do, you, how do you facilitate, you know, downloading your knowledge and your experiences and your processes to your employees um, so that they can implement it in their day jobs, right? And so, so, the, so how do you do it? Can you share some? Sure. You know, a lot of it is... Uh, I think a, a big piece that we've implemented and have a lot of success in is, is feedback mechanisms, right? So how do you leaders in the company get feedback, right? And, and share feedback, right? So, you know, we do what we call a 360 review process, right? So, you know, it, basically it's like an employee review. You know, every employee has what we call a, an RRE, or that it's a, it's a document that kind of outlines their roles, responsibilities, and expectations. Hey, like, what are you responsible for in your role Right, and what are the expectations and the outcomes that you should be expecting? And every employee is different, right? Every employee has you know different comparative advantages, and so every R and E is different, right? It can sometimes kind of read as a job title, right, or a job description, but it, but it's not, right? Because you know every individual has different strengths, right, that they can bring to the table and bring to the group, right? And you know also you have to kind of mesh that with. The rest of the employees, and you know, in their individual groups, right? Because they all have different comparative advantage, and you have to kind of stack that to get the best outcome. And so, every employee is connected to this R and E document, right? It's a kind of a, a tool to facilitate conversations with supervisors and, and teams um, to kind of say, hey, like, hey, how are you connected to the vision of the business, right? And how, you know, are you creating value according to that vision, right? And so, we, you know, that's kind of the first step. We've got the r &E, and then we do what's called a 360 review process, right? Well, we're getting feedback and soliciting feedback through, a, through an actual mechanism, right? So it's a 360 review, like everybody knows what it is. We've got a form, you know, and so like, let's say I was, you know, needed, you know, you're in a direct report of mine and I'm trying to get feedback from, you know, your peers and, as well as your, uh, you know, internal customers and, and, and sometimes external customers, right? where, you know, I'm going to send, you know, a request to somebody, people that you work with and trying to get a full 360 degree view. So people that you know, are on your level, people that are under your level and people that are above your level to really kind of see, hey, what is, what is the what is the full feedback circle that you're getting? Right. And, and as well as, you know, how, how do you feel that you've been doing? And so I think that that's, that's really important, right? It's, it's a really good way to kind of transfer knowledge down the chain, right? From the very top, everybody in the whole company is doing it, right? And it kind of moves it all the way down. When you guys started the startup, did you guys have employees already or was it just the two of you? 
Oh, we had we had employees. So we had about I think seven employees right out the gate. We started so we started with with freight. So we started with customers. Um, kind of started the company around three specific customers, but one one in particular called Floor and Decor. I don't know if, if you've heard of them. They've gotten pretty large here. We started with Floor and Decor when they had one store uh, in Atlanta, Georgia, and by the end of our first year, they had over 150 stores. Did you pick specifically clients that you knew were going to grow, or was it just by accident? Dumb luck. <laughs> <laughs> how do you deal? How do you deal with that? A client that hundred x's their business and and kind of I, I can assume expects you to keep up. How do you? How do you keep up? Oh, it was uh, it, it was tough, man. Uh, so share some more, stories. <laughs> yeah. So kind of the, 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 the way that we the way that we got and landed floor and decor, you know, they they were they were starting to build out their supply chain and look to figure out how to do it. Um, and so they were talking to the, the obvious big name dogs, right? Echo Logistics, CH Robinson, you know, these guys who could go out, get them rates, handle their supply chain, and those guys would have been able to do it fine, right? They're they're big box, you know, types and floor and decor would kinda of had to fit in there. And so we took a different approach of like, hey, like we're customizable to you. You know, we're, we're small, we're kind of like the, the speedboat, right, to their cruise ship, right? Cruise ships can't really turn and maneuver very well, right? They're going one direction, and that's what it is. But, you know, we, we implemented a, a thought process, like, hey, we're going to be a speedboat where we can turn and move and turn around and, you know, kind of be what you need us to be, you know, as a, as a logistics partner. And so kind of the turning point was uh, Florin Decor had a shipment that was not getting delivered, and uh, Adam actually drove like 150 miles at like 7 p.m. at night on a Friday and physically unloaded the truck. <laughs> and, and so he calls, he calls the uh, transportation manager and he says, you know, is C.H. Robinson going to do that for you? Right? And, and of course the answer is no. And so we kind of got our shot there. And, and, and got lucky as Florida Core scaled and grew, you know, very, very quickly. Um, and, you know, they kind of... I wouldn't say funded our business, but you know, we you know we didn't have to take on debt, you know, because we you know had a customer like that. So you also so didn't, we, you also didn't give up equity as you were growing your business for new investors. We did initially. We did right. So initially, we started with uh, an equity partners. It was a, a company out of Jacksonville, Florida. A company. It was a one one very wealthy individual out of Jacksonville, Florida. That he started a. A small private equity company. We were his. We were their first investment, and so initially, initially, we did raise about nine hundred thousand dollars. But throughout the process, uh, you didn't have to because you had the backing of this individual, or we didn't, and we didn't have to take any more money as well either, right? So essentially, essentially, they just kind of came in as a, for, as an initial equity swap at the beginning, and then we never raised money again. But so. What you experienced is kind of the definition of hyper growth. Like suddenly you have to do 100x what you were doing like in a couple of months. Didn't you have, how did, how did the process go for you? Was it like, oh, okay, we can do this really easy. Uh, we just copy paste systems or were there like sleepless nights? Oh, there were hundreds and hundreds of 16, 20 hour days. Yeah, we had, you know, we had, uh, there was one time, so as Florida Core got, you know, going back to Florida Core, as they got bigger and bigger, 
right? We started, uh, you know, they started the payments for their freight was became longer and longer, right? So they were not a good freight payer. You know, typically, you know, our customers pay us within 30 days, right? So, you know, we, we negotiate the rates, shipment happens, right? Carrier sends an invoice and there's, you know, 30 to 45 day payment terms. Typically customers will pay us in 30 days. We turn around and pay the, cust- the carrier in 35 to 45 days, right? So we were always cash positive. Well, the floor and decor, sometimes they would pay in 30 days. Sometimes they would pay in 90 to 100 days. And so, so it's just like, you know, my partner lost his hair, you know, due to stress. Um, How did you solve that? My, <laughs> my had, worst client that ever paid, I think, was 90 days. Or maybe there was one exception that eventually did 120 because they really just screwed up everything. Uh, but, like, there was a new law passed in the Netherlands that doesn't allow that to happen anymore. But how do you, how did you deal? Like how did you and your partner deal with that? Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you the solution. Uh, but first, we had a uh, there was there was one instance where we you know to to deal with it at first right, we weren't take we didn't have institutional help right we didn't have a real banking relationship we were just with a you know a community bank there in, in Georgia and uh, we had a carrier that we had been kind of stringing out because Florida Corps hadn't been paying us and we didn't have the cash to pay them right and so. You know, it was a very, it was a weekly occurrence where, you know, we would write the checks to the carriers and sit, you know, they'd sit on my desk and then we'd put those, uh, we'd send the carriers an email, right? With the remittance information and say, Hey, you know, this check number 895 and it, it's going out today. And then it would sit on my desk for a week and a half <laughs> before we'd mail it out. And then at one time, at one time we had a carrier call us in the morning and say, you need to wire us a hundred thousand dollars. Or we're shutting, we're turning the lights off on you. And so we, we figured it out and we, uh, we went and took several personal loans and wired the money personally over to the carrier by the end of the day to keep the lights on. Um, but it, it, was, it was a lot of stuff like that, right? Then, you know, that, hey, you're kind of bootstrapping it and, and figuring it out. But eventually we got large enough, right? We got, we got more than one customer. We kind of diversified our customer base. Had, had six or seven, you know, fairly large customers. So we went from, you know, zero revenue out the gate to, you know, $40 million under management in a year and a half. Uh, so it was very, very fast growth. Um, you know, and from then, once we had kind of some financial stability, you know, I went out and did a banking, you know, relationship process, right? We went and interviewed, you know, Wells Fargo's and Chase what, Bank. What, what is that process? I've, I've never heard of that process. What does that mean? Just finding a finding a finding a new banking partner, right? You know, banking relationships are very important, right? They they provide they can provide funding. So essentially, what we were trying to do was, uh, you know, get a partner with a essentially what's called a line of credit, right? So hey, oh, okay. Yeah. So you're establishing a relationship with a uh, bank that exactly. will give you a line of credits. Okay, clear. Right. So you know, so we're not running into situations where. You know, we've got a we've got to fund a carrier that day. Like, hey, you know, if we run into an issue, you know, the bank gives us gives us money to kind of get through it. How uh, how did you solve the whole like ninety day payout things? It's it's, it's something that's very common, right? Your your giant corporations, right? Your WalMarts, you know, your Sears, you know, these type these type of companies, they still do it. Your PepsiCo's, Frito Lay's, right? Though it's a hundred day hundred day terms. 
All right, so they have all this freight that they control. Right, and essentially what you have to do and what we learned is you have to negotiate that in with the carriers on the front end. So what we were doing to floor and decor on the front end was like, hey, every time they would, they would increase the payment terms, we would increase the margin. So you, they pay extra for increasing the payment terms? Yeah, yes, yes, exactly. So hey, like, you know, if you're not gonna pay us on time, the, the margin or the cost of the freight is now more, right? And the, and the carriers do the same thing to you now, it's just in a contract, right? So you say up front, you, you know, delineate, hey, this is what the payment terms are gonna be. You know, we're gonna pay in 60 days, we're gonna pay in 75, whatever it is. Right, and the carrier will give you will adjust their rate that they give you in their in the contract based on that. The the, the smart ones do. I have a question. So you got the investor in, and um, so you have a wealthy individual in the company. Worst case, like things happen, but yet that um, uh, that guy calls you and says, "Hey, like things are bad. You have to wire the money." How come you couldn't turn to to your investor to ask for the money? And and we and we could have. Right, we, we How come have. you didn't then? Uh, we didn't want to give up any more equity. Oh, he would have asked for equity. He wouldn't have asked for like a loan with interest right. or something. Smart. <laughs> <laughs> how uh, how has the journey been uh, of selling the company? You obviously out the gate started really strong. Uh, no, first the question is, okay, so you started really strong. You had one client. How did you diversify? How did... I think your partner was getting these new clients. How did he get these big clients? Yeah, so we, we got clients through network networking, right? So, you know, we're working our networking and in, in, in our in our business, right? One client is, is a lot, right? So, you know, we sold our company and we only had 14 clients. But like, how do you, like, what is networking for you? Because networking for me is like going to international conferences. I'm in the tech sector, so I'd be finding, you know, a lot of companies in the tech, like Web Summit, the Next Web, our event type of thing. Would you go to like specific freights and logistics conferences or how? Yeah, we did. We did do that. Um, initially, honestly, it was at the golf course. What? Yeah. <laughs> golf course? We, we, Tell uh, me more. We, yeah, we were members of uh, a couple country clubs in Atlanta, right? And, and, and you, you meet people through the golf course, right? You meet people through the clubs. Um, and so yeah, we, got, we got our first five, four customers that way. It was, you know, through connections. Can you, you know, share a story? Like, I can't imagine, <laughs> like, how... Because uh, a golf course... I've been on a golf course, and you're, like, with your friends, and you're waiting till the next one uh, is finished, and then you move on to the next uh, course. So, can you like share one well, sh story? Sure, right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but so you, typically when you go to like a public golf course and you play that way, it is that way, right? But you know, at the clubs, it's you know, it's membership only, and you know, you play with different members, right? And you're on you're on a oh, okay. you're on a golf course alone with you know I don't know with two other guys for three hours. Oh, so they match you up do. with other members. Yeah, you can. Yeah, I mean, you you can obviously just go and play by yourself, but you know, that's kind of how you know how we leveraged it, right? And so I, I'll tell you, being alone, playing golf, drinking beer with a guy—if you can't sell what you do in the three hours that you got their undivided attention, like then what you what you're doing is not good. So, 
What's a membership cost at a like a uh, clubhouse like that? Oh, it's it, it differs by the club. You know, they can be typically there's like an initiation fee of you know could be five thousand to a hundred thousand depending on the club, and then there's month monthly dues and stuff like that. So it's expensive. But if you're in the right business, it it comes uh, it becomes worth right. it. So okay, so that's clear. I never expected that to be networking, but it sounds interesting. Uh, so but how we, uh, we also we also did go to uh, freight and logistics conferences. You know, did you get something out of those? Do you, like do we you did. get? Yeah. Yeah, we did. We uh we actually landed our biggest customer. Uh, it's a furniture manufacturer out of uh, get this uh, Santa Claus, Indiana. It's a real that's, place. That's a city, Santa. It's a real place. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> And so yeah, did, did a, you have a booth have a Christmas there? theme park. Yes, we had a booth. We had a booth. And, and, and what these conferences do, they've gotten very they've gotten very good and very sophisticated in that they will um, you have a booth as well, but then you're also going to conferences and you're paying for meetings. Right? So the conference orchestrates with the vendors and also with the customers, right? And says, Hey, you know, you know, they interview the customers and say, What do you do? Right, you know, and then you interview the vendors and they, and they match you up. And so you have like a 15 to 20 minute meetings. I think they're mostly 20 minute meetings that they line you up all day, right? So we go in with 15 meetings a day with, you know, basically, you know, verified leads, verified customers who are looking for our services. Can I ask how much you paid for those matchmakings? It would, uh, between 20 and $30,000. Just for the matchmakings or was that with the- For the conference. Included? Okay. Yeah, yeah, that was the total for the conference. Do you do it nowadays um, with the virtual conferences? Do you feel like they're even worth it? Uh, so, kind of the the model that we kind of shifted to and take is is basically it's like a, what we call a channel partner model, right? So essentially, it's leveraging leveraging our networks, right? You know, leveraging our connections, and then you know. Typically, hey, you know people who work in roles, right? Especially as your career grows and you get more and more involved, right? You, you meet more and more people who, who who know customers, you know, who can introduce you and give you that kind of handshake introduction, right? Because that's that's what it's becoming more more about, right? It's like who do you know and who can you? It's it's all about who you can trust. And so what we've found and had tremendous success with is you know paying people in our networks to give us those handshake introductions. To, to potential clients, right? And then when the when those clients, we pay them when those clients come on. Right? Okay, yeah. So you, you know, like you love a, you know, you have a, your brother-in-law, right, is the transportation manager at some major manufacturing company, right? And you give me a hand, you give me an introduction, say, hey, like this is Ryan, you know, he's working with LTX Solutions and I think he could really help you. Right? And then we land that customer on the freight, like you're going to get a percentage of their net revenue for, you know, two to three years. Oh, so, so you, we, you do it not as a one-time fee, you do it as for a couple of exactly. years. Oh, wow, yeah. okay. But your deals are pretty big, so can I ask what somebody would be getting on average if they make an introduction like that? I mean, you know, we, we could pay people, you know, four to 8% of net revenue, and you know, net revenue could be $100,000 a month. Holy shit, so one introduction <laughs> would just put them, uh, <laughs> Okay, that's uh, 
should look into my network. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, but, so uh, if you know anybody, hit me up. No, but that's that's interesting because when we do we do the same thing, but we give a one-time fee, which is a percentage of the initial contract. But you actually do it like as a two, three-year deal. Yeah, and so it, and it's structured in such a way that it encourages it encourages you to do more, right? So hey, it's it's big, right? And then in the first year, you know, it may be six percent, right? And then in year two, it drops down to five percent or four percent, right? And then year okay. three, it's down to two or three percent, right? And so what that does is it, one, it tails it off, but it also encourages you and says, hey, like, do it again, you know? Yeah. Give us more. Okay, so pretty much you start like. Let's say five percent, four percent, and then third year is like two percent or something. Right. Uh, and so if they okay, interesting. But that means that it's also encouraging for your clients to refer you to other clients. We do. We do have that. You know, typically we we're not going to pay our clients. Uh, we, we we don't have those type of agreements in place with our clients. But we do have clients. You know, hey, we've got a transportation manager at one, uh, you know, one company that we're very very close with. Right. And everything is relationship based, right? especially in our business. And so you know, they're close with a transportation manager at a sister company or a different company. And you know, so we've we've been recommended into the new relationships that way as well. So when you started growing, you started getting some clients, what was the process like of getting acquired? When did the first uh, indication come that you might be getting acquired? What was going through you, through your mind and uh, your partner's mind? Oh, sure. Yeah, we went through a very intense process, right? We probably interviewed 50 companies. Were you actively selling it or did somebody approach you? I mean, we, we started the company with the mindset that we were going to sell it. Um, you know, we kind of had a, uh, I wouldn't say it was a toxic relationship, but it was a, it was an uncomfortable relationship with our partners. Um, you know, they were, they were silent, not involved in the business at all, but, um, a very, very restrictive. And, uh, you know, we had our own vision for how we kind of wanted the company to go. You know, originally we sought out to be a platform company. So essentially, you know, private equity companies and, you know, work are in, Sometimes individuals were coming in and offering us deals, right? With the, hey, they're gonna come in, we're gonna upgrade our partners, and they're gonna give us essentially a war chest. And with that war chest, we're gonna go make acquisitions to kind of bolt on to us as a platform company. Um, so that was kind of the original thought process. It's like, hey, you know, how, how, do we, how do we really scale this thing and, you know, get it? Hey, we're at, we're at 40 million, gross revenue right now, how do we scale this thing to a hundred million? How do we scale it to 200 million, right? And it really wasn't doable with the partnership and equity structure we had at the time, right? We needed new partners that could come and they could give us acquisition money so that we could go out and buy the capabilities that we needed in order to scale and to, ser- to service our customers, right? Because we were only, we had positioned ourselves in a kind of a, a niche market where we were just doing LTL, right? And kind of our sell- our selling point was like, hey, you know, don't go to one of these big general doctors who do everything, right? We are, you know, think of us as like, hey, like if you broke your ankle, you would go to a foot surgeon. Like we're we're your foot surgeon. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but you know, I, I think what we're what we're learning, or what we, what we learned, and, and what we kind of always knew was, you know, the really really big companies that they need a partner that can do everything for them, right? Which is what which is what Redwood has become. Um, and, and we knew that. And so, you know, initially we were going out and we were going and saying, hey, like, 
we need money to go acquire you know new capabilities as far as parcel you know full truckload you know international freight we need to be able to offer these services to our clients right because one we're going to be able to service our existing clients much better but also we're going to be able to start you know to really acquire bigger and bigger clients and more of them you know as we grow and so you know our process was you know pretty simple we we partnered with a investment banker who introduced us to a bunch a bunch of private equity groups and we got a lot of very interesting offers um, to kind of for them to come in you know help us build it up help us scale it and really grow it but in the end the uh, the opportunity with Redwood what they were doing um, in the tech space was just so incredible how did they find you how did you find them so Redwood was actively looking um, for acquisition targets at the time, right? So they had kind of just started. They had just gotten their uh, Redwood had just been purchased by the private equity group in uh, 2017, right? Or beginning of 2018, January of 2018, and uh, they had purchased one other company called Simplified Logistics out of Cleveland, Ohio. And you know they were looking, they they were looking to grow. They were, they were actively looking on the market. Um, and so they they kind of found us through their investment bankers and our investment banker. So that bank relationship you established led to these different. Um, okay, but so it was just mostly networking that got you on their radar. Yeah, yes, yeah, and we had kind of we had gone up against Simplified Logistics um, a couple times. <laughs> and uh, okay, so then. <clears throat> How does it actually look like? So Redwood approaches you. I mean, I've seen it sometimes, some of our startups um, getting investors in. I, I, I've never, like, the startups we deal with are very young, so they, I haven't seen one yet get acquired. So what does that process look like? Yeah, so Redwood was different for us. It was different than what we were looking at, right? We were, we were initially looking and uh, being approached as being a platform company, right? So we were gonna be the, we were gonna be the guys. Right, and so we weren't. We didn't think that we would be ready to sell into you know a full acquisition um, like that. But so Redwood Redwood came knocking, and you know the the guys, the, the leadership team with Redwood, they're just they're, they're visionaries in the in the logistics space and in the and in the tech space, and kind of what they're what they've been to, what they were starting to do, and what we've been able to do since is uh, was was something that we just couldn't we couldn't pass up, and so. Yeah, they came knocking on our doors in 2018, right after they had uh, sold to CI. And uh, it, it took about a year, honestly, of going through, you know, typically deals, especially of that size and that dollar figure um, of our deal was, you know, they bring in accounting firms and do audits and audit your IT and interview your management. And How is that? Um, happening while you guys are running the business doesn't that require a lot of resources time that you technically don't have because yeah. you're hyper growing yeah so essentially what it, it, it took a lot of adamantized time right but we, we had built up a team of about 20 22 employees at the time and uh, neither of us were extremely involved in the day-to-day operations right it was more you know, working on the business, right? And so we were able to, you know, I had a, we both had right-hand guys that we were able to kind of dictate or, uh, you know, push down a lot more of the responsibilities too, who, you know, really stepped up and handled all that because it was a ton of time on Adam and Maya's part. Really? 
what does it, a ton of time look like? Can you like share a story or something? Sure. Uh, it just, you know, during the interview process while we're interviewing companies, private equity companies, right? You know, it's dinners and lunches and, you know, prepare, preparing financials and, you know, you know, we, uh, we were, we were a relatively small company, but, you know, we, we went through two audits, um, you know, we partnered with a CPA firm, not a, not a big four, but it's, you know, in the five to eight range and, you know, got doing, doing our audits, you know, it was a very time consuming activity. Um, but yeah. Do, do you have to pay for those audits or does Redwood pay for it? Oh no, it's uh, so during a deal, right? The acquiring company would pay. It's called what's called a quality of earnings. So it's essentially a, it's essentially an audit, right? So they come in and they uh, determine, hey, what is the? You say that you your financial statements say this, right? You know, can we trust it, right? And it, it helped a lot that we had gone through those audits the two years before, right? So we said, hey, like you know, Fraser and Dieter, uh, you know, very respectable CPA firm has audited our books for the last two years, right? You know things are in good shape and so that helps a lot right when we did that strategically you know that's you know typically a company of our size might not have gone to paid fifty thousand dollars for an audit um but we did it two years in a row because we knew we were trying to sell and we knew that that would that would help in the in terms of that that's so smart so pretty much if you're aware you're about to sell it's good to spend like a couple of years beforehand on a larger accounting firm just to audit your books Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we, we made a lot of strategic decisions, you know, geared towards selling, right? Even when it came down to like using our CRM, right? You know, we were using HubSpot and really, really like, really liked HubSpot. Um, but kind of what going through that private equity process taught us was that, you know, a lot of these uh, PE guys, a lot of them are older, um, a lot, and some of them are younger. None of them know what HubSpot is. Seriously? <laughs> And so it was just like having to explain, like, oh, it's, you know, like Salesforce. And, you know, everybody knows what Salesforce is. So, you know, what we ended up doing was moving to Salesforce. Serious? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so we, we geared our CRM that way. You know, we geared our accounting that way. Um, once we, we partnered with NetSuite, which is, you know, powered by Oracle. And so we had NetSuite as our, you know, our accounting partner and our, uh, basically our bookkeeper accounting software. Which is really, really beneficial because even when we sold to Redwood, you know, Redwood was using some outdated version of, you know, uh, Microsoft uh, General Dynamics, right? And, uh, you know, kind of one of the first projects we did, you know, after the acquisition was we, we uh, onboarded three systems that we were using. We were very tech forward, NetSuite, Salesforce, and uh, Tableau. I don't know if you're familiar with Tableau. But all three of them, Redwood has adopted and implemented and does so way better than we had. But What do you think about Salesforce? Because uh, obviously we looked over HubSpot and Salesforce and Salesforce seemed so archaic to me. Is that uh, no, true? Salesforce, yeah, Salesforce is, it, it's, it's by far the best on the market. Really? And it's not, and it's not, it's not even close. Yeah. So, so what can you do with Salesforce that you can do with HubSpot, for instance? It's more the... Uh, the implementations and the integrations, right? The way that you can uh, modify Salesforce out of the box, right? So, like, if you, you know you're a small startup, like it doesn't matter. Hub for us at LTX, HubSpot was better in the sense that it was easier to use. Yeah. And you know, in that case, but once you get into very large scale organizations, you know, like the size of Redwood or, or larger, right? The the adaptability uh, of Salesforce is is extremely extremely powerful. 
So can you give an example of how you use Salesforce then? So we have a, you know, I remember they have a uh, sales team of about, I think maybe 25 sales reps. And so every, everything is in Salesforce. It's kind of what we call our source of truth. You know, we're loading in our, you know, it's, it's database backed, right? So we're loading in, you know, customer financials. We're doing commission calculations out of there. Everything, you know, we're doing obviously the, the normal things, right? You know, the communication is logged, but you know, HubSpot does that. Yeah. Okay, but so for logistics and all these like modifications that might happen, Salesforce might be a better option because of all the complexities involved. Right, yeah. It's a much more powerful tool. Hub, I mean, not to take anything away from HubSpot, HubSpot is great. Yeah, I, I really like the interface of HubSpot, that's why I was asking. Yeah, I use HubSpot for my uh, consulting company. Nice. So, okay, so then you got acquired. Um, apparently it takes a year of you and your, so it's literally you and your partner's time. It's not like you guys could split up somehow. One runs the company, one does the interviews. Yeah, you know, and really it was, it was both of us. Um, it took up tons and tons of time. You know, we, we still ran the company, we still were involved in the company and ran the company, but you know, it's, it? it's a full-time job to go sell your company. <laughs> I want to I want to zoom out a little bit and like this story I think most of the people that know you like know it maybe not this much in detail but what was the personal life like what was like this is hyper growth you're going through obviously you're not alone uh, as you're going through it but you know how was it in in your personal life going through these stories like uh, getting personal loans to pay off uh people like <laughs> how did your wife deal with it uh and and friends and and what was your did you have time for sports or were you at the golf course all the time networking <laughs> it takes a toll on personal life right and you know both of us have you know very good very good very good women behind us um they're you know very strong on their own um yeah but you know it takes a toll and it takes you know mutual understanding of like, hey, this is, this is temporary, right? You know, it's kind of the, it was kind of the motto is this is temporary. We're working towards a specific goal and kind of once we achieve that goal, things will, things will calm down. And they did. Right? Did you, you think know, it so. was going to happen in three years though? Uh, kind of after the first year, yeah, right? Because, you know, we had, we had achieved so much in that for, you know, from November of 2016 to November of 2017, you know, just we we had onboarded three, you know, giant customers. You know, four and a quarter was growing like crazy, and so we, you know, that was when we said, hey, like, we thought this was going to be, you know, in three years we're going to go start looking, but it looks like we're there. You know, twelve to eighteen months. Wow. So then you got acquired. Um, how did your personal life change after that? Were you still like working crazy hard and still? Like, how, how do things change after that? Well, you know, we got acquired by a, a company that's, that was well out of startup phase, right? You know, they were very much an established company uh, with, with, with much better processes and procedures and controls and, uh, and, and, and people, right? You know, we're a company of almost a thousand people now. And so, you know, before at LTX, it was, you know, Adam and I, you know, we, you know, we did everything. So, is the acquisition number public, by the way, from your startup? Uh, no, it's not okay. public. Yeah. Uh, but then, okay, so, so you pretty much now 
just have a normal job. You're not stressed or anything. You don't have over hours that you have to do. Well, you know, it depends, right? You know, so I'm one of those workaholic types that if I'm not working on something, then I'm <laughs> not happy. So, <laughs> so we're, we're, we're still working. So Redwood's ultimate goal is to sell again, right? So, you know, it's private equity owned. So kind of the nature of private equity is, you know, they raise a fund, they go buy companies, they build them up and then they sell and they've got to return that fund plus, you know, a return to those investors. And so, you know, Redwood will sell again at some time in the future. Um, and so, yeah, things are, that's kind of the, the vision of the company, right? It's building it for scale, right? But it, it also, but it, it will be sold. And so. But we'll how much revenue does Redwood do now? 20 billion, you said, or it's some crazy number? I wish. <laughs> it's, we're, we're, managing, we're managing a little over 2 billion in freight. 2 billion, okay, so. Who do you go for acquisition at that point? Like DHL or something? Like <laughs> FedEx? <laughs> so it, it it could be it could be future you know future private equity partners. You know it could be the same the same group that you know reinvests. You know I I don't I don't know, um, but the 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 pool is smaller. Obviously, the pool would be smaller as to who who could make that acquisition. Why go through that story again? I mean, you pretty much. I know, like, I know how to phrase it, but you've pretty much done it. Like three years, bomb. You've made huge profits. You did something that not a lot of people can do. You sold. Why go get a job? Why not just cash out, start a new business, or just consult like a lot of startup uh, founders do that sold and have a bunch of money? Well, you know, so so typically, you know, kind of, and you see this happen over and over and over again, right? The blueprint, the blueprint for selling your company, right, is you, you you build a startup, and you sell it to whether it's private equity or whatever, right? So you go three, five, ten years, however long that takes, and you, you initially sell your company, and you typically don't cash out, right? You typically roll. Um, and that, in that case, that's what Adam and, and I did, right? You know, and we've got another partner as well, and we all rolled. Um, and so when that happened, you know, so in, in this instance, when Redwood sells again, right, our initial investment in Redwood, you know, will have tripled or quadrupled in that time, right? Because that's typically the nature of private equity, right? Is they're, they're raising a fund, they make investments, and they're trying to get three to four times, you know, and that's not every private equity, but most private equities are trying to get three and four times their investment, right? And so when you're investing with those guys, you also are getting three to four times your investment. It's very difficult in the market to go and get a three times return in three, three to four years. But I mean, at the same time, you are having a proper job, which is, I think, well, actually, that's a good thing to explore because a lot in the business community we're in, for instance, a lot of guys just want freedom. So what you're saying here is, hey, I cashed, well, I sold my business, but I got a job. What's the argument for getting the, I mean, just money wouldn't be enough an argument, I think, to get the job. Why not just have the freedom? I mean, you absolutely can do that, right? But, you know, the, the, the blueprint and the model, right? And, you see, and like I said, you see this all the time. These guys, hey, they build their company, they sell it for $3 million to a private equity group, right? And, you know, they are then, you know, they have those private equity partners, but they're still growing that business, right? And so we're still growing, L, you know, the LTX business. It's just now Redwood. Um, 
you know, but they, they grow that business with the, the, new, the new private equity group, and then they sell that in three to four years, and that $3 million they got is now nine, $9 $10 million. And then in four or five years after that, they sell it again, and that's now $40 million, right? And so that's how you see these guys who, hey, they sold a company, and then 15 years later, they're worth $100 million. Clear. So, so then that's pretty much the plan. Uh, have you ever thought about not continuing, just cashing out and doing something completely different? Sure, right, sure. You know, and, and those those options, you know, were on the table when you know we were talking about selling. It's like, what's the what was that conversation plan? like with Adam? Like, what? Obviously, Redwood comes. It's about to happen. You just need to sign something. What's the conversation like? Yeah, so the, the reason that we partnered with Redwood was because the their leadership team, they're about 10 to 15 years older than us, um, and the cultures fit incredibly well, right? Redwood, Redwood has an amazing culture. Um, you know, we, had, we were very proud of our culture, right, as you know, we've talked about before. Um, but we were able to kind of, I would say, hitch onto their wagon. The, you know, I can't really get... Too, too into the details as to you know kind of what they're doing on the on the tech side. We've got a, a product called Redwood Connect, and I'll shoot you over a couple marketing videos that are public on it later. Um, but it's a really really special um, kind of innovative groundbreaking technology that's you know, we're introducing into the logistics space. Um, and so kind of when we when when we got the previews of what they were doing, um, we just had to be a part of it. Do you, do you, when they give you these previews and everything, um, are NDAs involved? Like, are there NDAs? Of, of course, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, good to know. Uh, then, when, uh, when Redwood was doing due diligence on you to, to acquire you, was there an NDA for them? Sure, yeah, we, we signed what was called like a mutual, mutual NDA, right? So, okay. you know, both the lawyers on, each side go through it and make sure everybody's covered. Is it because it was, it was more important for us to have the NDA, right? Yeah, because the, the acquiring company kind of comes in and sees what you're doing and sees who your customers are and you know kind of gets yeah, the exactly. full download on you. And then they can say, "Well, we don't want to do the deal," and then they just go and. Yeah, that's why I was uh, asking. So now you um, have pretty much this job. Um, how did the pandemic affect the whole thing? You know, it was... Because I can very, imagine logistics challenged. and freight would actually boom during the pandemic. So some of it did. You know, it had, you know, you had some bumps, like when everybody went and bought all the toilet paper and the groceries right away, <laughs> like the, those stores had to be restocked, right? So you had bumps there. Uh, but it, the pandemic, you know, the downturn, the, the crash in the economy hit logistics just like it did everyone else, you know? In, I was very proud of the way that kind of Redwood handled that. We had a lot of our competitors that, you know, laid off 900 employees, you know, just boom, gone, right? And, and Redwood didn't lay off a single employee, right? You know, we, we sent everybody home, you know, worked around the clock to kind of make sure everybody had what they needed to be able to work from home. And we, you know, we covered, we covered the processes. And then we, you know, we, we have really good partners in, in New York and we didn't, didn't have to lay off a single employee, right? And then, you know, hey, we, we, we had a downturn, right? Just like everybody else did in, a, in those first few months, but we really recovered on the back half of 2020 and actually grew our business year over year, which is pretty remarkable. Maybe a completely irrelevant question, but me looking as a European at the States, like, how do you think everything, like, 
you're like there how bad was it like because from our perspective looking from europe in we were just thinking like what the hell is happening in america um oh, you had you the, just uh... the protest corona was handled like awfully from obviously the news perspective but how was it actually like you were there you were part of a company uh like was it really that bad or was it like fine no i mean it is bad especially in the cities in the big cities it was bad right you know i was in atlanta for a good part of it and when the when the initial protests happened you know we were under we were locked inside our homes for seven days right so it, it was bad um and you know i don't know if You know, a lot of it was driven politically. You know, it seems like these things happen every four years and the, the temperature gets turned up really, you know, really high every four years. Um, but, you know, there, there's some things that there's a lot of there's, there's a big movement here. And, you know, things seem seem seems to be changing or going to change. And But I think what you'll see is you'll see the, the tone kind of go down over the next few months. Right. There's been a there's been a change politically and. Yeah, I think that's, the, the, that's the actually will interesting what you just said. So every four years, the temperature gets turned up. Is I that mean, what you think about? You think about 2016. If you just look back in 2016 and 2012, right? The same types of things. The exact same things happened in 2016, except you didn't have a, or well, 2015 leading up to the 2016 election, right? You didn't have the pandemic, but pandemic obviously made a lot of things worse, right? You had everybody kind of locked down at home, not being able to work. And you know, the temperature got turned up real high and, you know, the kind of the evolution of social media has gotten to a point where, you know, it's... Did you watch started. that Netflix show uh, on the social media? Oh, yeah, it had me deleting my apps. <laughs> did, did you watched it? What did you think of it? It makes, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. I, I agree with most of what was said in that, in that documentary. Because like, you, you think about it and it's like, yeah, I always get these just awful notifications like you know lover posted for the first time in a while and i'm like oh i should see what lover said and now i'm on my app for an hour right you know so that you know i think that uh yeah it was definitely eye-opening right it definitely had me deleting turning off all notifications did you delete more, facebook definitely deleted facebook really as a the app from my phone like i still have it yeah. on my desktop yeah, and i course. check it maybe once a week to Same. see how you know families do it's pretty like bad though i mean feel like with all social media it starts off noble and good and interesting and fun but it's just facebook has turned into something pretty awful um i i never expected it that way well, yeah. yeah the 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 stuff in Myanmar you know where like facebook is the internet you know these the, yeah. and it's not like these guys were just you know random guys talking about it they were you know very high level at these social media companies talking about, Hey, this is, it's, it's obviously created a ton of, a ton of good things in our lives. Right. But it's also, you know, do you think it's shifting towards more bad stuff though? I've been lately having these thoughts that, uh, it did a lot of good of course, but is it maybe now shifting towards the bad? And maybe it's just that, maybe it's just that pendulum, right? Because the good, the good was the good for so long, right? You're connecting families, connecting people online, right? There's tons of things like, well, how did you communicate with people before the internet, right? You know, and so you had that, you had that huge pendulum swing of all of this, like 
really great innovation and really good things that came out of it. And kind of now you're seeing the pendulum swing back, right? Everything's a pendulum, right? It always swings back and forth. And so I think, you know, we're starting to get, you know, a lot of visibility to the negative effects of social media. And, and I think they'll, you know, depending on, I don't know what the timing will be, but I think steps will be taken to correct some of these things and mitigate. I mean, you know, it's already happening. Things. Did you hear Trump got blocked from Twitter permanently? <laughs> that's like, like, that's quite an, I mean, on the one side, it's like an, uh, a correction that kind of needed to happen because he was lying. Uh, and it's like, go talk bad, but don't lie. But on the other side, it's also like he's the president and he got blocked can, if, permanently. If, if they can silence the president, like, that, that's scary, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I don't know how they'll work it out, right? You know, and I think, you know, it probably, they probably don't need to be, decide that themselves. Right. You know, I have to say Jack Dorsey um, posted, I think, uh, a tweet it was uh, about how to see that because a lot of people see Facebook and Twitter like a public forum. But Jack Dorsey pretty much said in his tweet, we're a private company and we or like we're a company, we're our own company and we decide what is good for our company. And then the reason we block Trump is because he's bad for our company. Uh, and when you look at it that way, you start realizing like these companies are not government institutions. So then it's kind of their decision whether they block people or not. But they have think, so much yeah, more power than any government. It's, it's scary because they're, they're more powerful than the government. But you're right, right? They're private companies and they should be able to enact their own policies. Right. And I think that's kind of what he was saying. It's like, hey, OK, hey, if you have a policy and, and Trump violated that policy, then Sure, right? But I think the, the, the backlash on Twitter was that they didn't really have a policy, right? They were just winging it as they went. Yeah, right? you, got, you got people in, you know, across the sea you know, calling for the genocide of you know, other races and stuff like that. So it's not, you, you're not, you're not uh, you know, enforcing a policy. You're just saying, we don't like Trump. And, and, and it wasn't just Trump, right? It was also, there's a lot of conservatives, right? So a lot of the, the argument on that side is that, hey, like, you just purged people that think differently than you do but is it so if i'm the devil's advocate is it truly that they think differently or is it because they're lying and spreading things that is proven to be wrong because i've seen some conservatives that genuinely i believe these are conservatives and they believe in in america it's usually christian values and everything uh they believe in leadership um and just like human decency but then you have these like conservatives, like right now in the news, um, that politician lady that just got into the house or whatever that believes in QAnon. That's just like. Yeah, I think you watch a lot of CNN, man. It I don't know. Really no, I'm on YouTube. I'm on YouTube. I'm watching. I'm watching everything from Fox News to everything to get the full perspective. But like from every perspective that you look, it's like QAnon. Come on, like. Well, I mean, but I think so. You got to live in the middle. There's crazies on both sides. You got you know the the lady in New York. Uh, what's her name? Cortez, Alexander Cortez, who who uh, kicked you know refused Amazon because she thought she was going to have to pay him four billion dollars in taxes. So you got you know people that are so stupid on that side. And you got people that are just as stupid on the other side, right? And, and I think the issue, I think but one I mean, of the things that's can we really media. compare somebody who doesn't understand corporate tax, which is also obviously not very smart, 
to somebody who believes in like things like we didn't go to the moon or something or flat earth that's like not the same comparison <laughs> is it not i mean they're both conspiracy theories that you got that somebody got convinced of right yeah maybe if you look at it from that perspective but <laughs> yeah interesting anyways um a, a good the re, i lately got very interested in it and i was talking with my girlfriend about it as to why uh and i think with the pandemic, there was this YouTube comment I read that just summarized it. During the pandemic, the first wave hit and like Netflix and all these companies went up in stocks. Everybody was watching everything on YouTube, Netflix, everything. And then um, the first wave kind of went away and things like start to calm down. And obviously the second wave came because of that. Um, but I feel like just like me, a lot of people were like bored out of their minds in the second wave you watched like almost everything on netflix that there were no no new movies because of the pandemic um everything was postponed and so there was pretty much just one show left that was really interesting and um at least like on this side of the ocean we called that show america like if you watch <laughs> fox news and cnn and all these it's just it's like the most interesting TV show that you cannot script. It's like reality TV times 10. Um, like the capital thing that happened, that was just crazy. Like you cannot even imagine a TV show that would have the balls to think of something like that. It's like you have the characters from Duck Dynasty <laughs> storming the guy. It's unbelievable. That Viking guy, I was like, you can't make this shit up. Like, how it's so like we're, horrible we're laughing about it but it's not funny it is no it's not so it, awful but it is yeah. incredibly addicting to watch is my point um and so i feel like i'm kind of a symptom of a lot of people that are not americans like it's a pandemic we're all locked up there's nothing to watch and america is kind of incredibly interesting <laughs> Um, and so you're kind of, we're stuck, the rest of the world is stuck watching America implode or something. I don't know what's happening there. So it's obviously interesting to speak to someone who actually runs there. A business is like uh, part of it. And so it, it is interesting to hear what you're saying, like obviously as to how the protests were uh, and how uh, both Yeah, sides. but you know, you, you think of it, you look at it now versus three months ago or four months ago. There's no more protests. Really? Right? There's, yeah, I mean, there's mean a, most of there's the no political change. And I, mean, and, and I think you, most you of the that. people got kicked out off the platform. I think that's partially why the protests, well, the, pro the protests were not the, you know, there's two sides, right? The, the protests were, you know, the black lives matter, you know, over the, the George Floyd protests over the summer. Right. Correct, right. And, you know, and those went on and on until the election and they stopped. They stopped anymore. Okay. Yeah. And you had the you had the one protest, or I don't know, you can't call that a protest. The storming of the Capitol was really the only incident from the crazy Trumpers. And I don't I feel like that's kind of stopped too. Trump kind of has come out and said, you know, like, hey, don't do this, even though he felt like he. Did told you him hear to do he that. wants to? Oh my, we're getting very political now. But did you hear he's starting <laughs> a third party? I'm telling you, this show has so many twists. It's crazy. Oh, he's going to buy uh, 
I heard maybe this is just a rumor. He's going to buy OAN as some kind of conservative, it's like some kind of conservative news network. So he's going to buy OAN and build his own Trump media to take on uh, Fox News. Totally and see that happen. He had Trump which is what he should do. <laughs> it's like it's like Trump University, and then it's like Trump News. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that I I didn't hear that one. But so apparently he's starting a third party, which I think is gonna be hilarious to see. It's like if, I didn't, if I didn't live here. <laughs> uh, I, you know, you say that, but um, in 2020, before the pandemic hit, like we had set budget aside to go to LA. Like I was ready. I had already like um, talked with the Dutch government. They have a, they have a satellite office there um, where. I think it's in WeWork, so they would have provided like some office space for us to get oriented. Um, I was literally like ready to maybe like see if we can move our company there or like open a new office there, um, see how the visa process would work and stuff like that. Um, and then the pandemic hit and literally like all the bad stuff uh, popped up, like the tax in California and how everybody's moving away. Yeah, I've moved uh, three clients out of California this year. Really? Not in the last few months. Oh, yeah. Just because like, 17% state tax, it's insane. Yeah, and then also like the living situation there with all the smog and the traffic and the homelessness. So, so that got exposed. Uh, then the whole racism thing, which obviously everybody knew was happening in America. But from Europe, like I didn't expect it to be that bad. Uh, I didn't know... like like how everything was structured so that got exposed and then the whole like how fanatical people are like whether it is left or right doesn't matter i think the whole two-party system is so weird we don't have that we don't have yeah, that yeah but I, I don't i don't think it's i don't think it's that bad right so what, what you see what what fox news does and what cnn does is they go and they take 10 people that are absolutely batshit crazy and then whatever they're doing, and then they extrapolate that and they project it onto 70 million people. And they make you think like, oh, well, you know, 70 million people think and act this way. When really it's just like some fucking crazies in Western Kentucky or, you know, some But I mean, you can deny, <laughs> idiots you can deny for instance, that if you, if you would move your company from Europe, right, um, and you would open up an office, like you shouldn't do that in California. The no, taxes do it in are Texas. ridiculous. Dude, in Texas or Florida. But so the argument is like, so my argument was, okay, not LA because California is crazy. Um, Silicon Valley is extremely expensive. So San Francisco is out as well. So now we're left with New York, which is crazy no, expensive as well. Don't do there. Or Texas. I was in Austin, Texas for South by Southwest. But um, here's my personal issue with Texas. I love the food. I love the people and everything. But everybody has guns there. And for me, as a European, that is weird. Let me tell you a story. I used to live in Texas. So um, me and Hannah, we just moved out there. With, we're with Coke Industries in Georgia Pacific. And uh, it's our, my first job out of school. And we're at the post office getting our passports. And we're waiting in line or we're going through the line or whatever. And this little old lady, she's got to be 92 years old. Like just like this, she's all you know, like hunched over, and she's with her cane and walks up to the to the uh, uh, window right next to us, and so I'm, Hannah's talking to the guy, or whatever, and I'm standing there, and she pulls out this giant bag and sits it up on the table, and she's looking for her wallet or something out of her bag, 
and she pulls out this revolver and sets it down. We're in a post office, a federal building, and pulls out this revolver. It's got a barrel like so huge on it. And I immediately am like, oh my God, like, what is this lady doing? And I'm looking around, like, surely everybody else is like crazy. Nobody bats an eye. <laughs> like, right. completely normal, like, no big deal. And I was just like, Hannah, are you getting this? Like, you know, this, this ancient old lady just pulled out a gun that's bigger than her <laughs> and set it on the table. Like, it's no big, like, it's nothing. <laughs> where, where was this in Texas? This is in uh, Lufkin, Texas. So it's a little town about uh, maybe two hours north of Houston on the east, east Texas. Jeez. But that's what I mean. It's like that lady is not a trained professional in the army who has a track record. Like, if you want to get a gun in Europe, I mean, you got to have some really good reason and then you still have to, I think, lock it up at the gun range. Uh, you're not allowed to carry it around. Um, I mean, you have countries like Switzerland where they have active duty. Um, so, but every citizen is trained in the army how to use a gun properly. In a, like, this is, it's not Texas where people like have shotguns and shoot the sign and stuff like that. It's not just Texas. It's, it's everywhere. Texas is known for it. But, you know, America was founded on... Right, the right to bear arms, right? No, and it's, of course. It's, it's one of the reasons we've never been invaded. No, but imagine my thought process is, okay, I moved to Austin, right? Like if, if I'd go anywhere in Texas, yeah. it'd be Austin. Uh, I moved to, to Austin. What if I have a car and I'm driving and it's like, I don't know, somebody has a bad day and road rage happens. I know why on my YouTube recommended it's been popping up a lot, but like somebody has road rage, cuts me off unfortunately i'm the kind of person that would like drive uh, by the window and be like hey dude what the fuck did you do just do i can just imagine in america or at least in texas that person would pull a gun on me you've been watching way too much tv man that shit doesn't happen <laughs> no i don't know i'm just like thinking in europe i know that's not gonna happen but in america like am i watching too much tv because it's pretty scary uh, I watched a YouTube recommended. It's so bad. I watched a YouTube recommended video. Um, I uh, I restarted MMA, and so I was watching Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu videos. Um, and the Gracies, um, the founders of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, um, they uh, are posting all the time these videos of one of their students, like setting, like getting into like a situation and then resolving it with their martial arts. But this one video was a guy who fucking like shouldn't uh like uh curse but he just pulled out a gun out of his uh there was ro there was like a road rage situation gets out the car pulls out a gun and just tells the guy that is raging on him to calm down and i'm just thinking okay yes that prevented the situation but at the same time he's holding a gun to prevent like that if, if, from a european perspective that's really weird <laughs> yeah yeah i can see that anyways um what are you going to do once the pandemic uh, goes away do you have uh, trips planned yeah so we're we, we, we've been planning to go to tokyo last year for the olympics nice we'll go this we'll go this year as long as it happens and we're allowed to i've got a uh, employee he's a guy who works directly for me that i hired when we were ltx 
named Solomon Simmons. And so Solomon is the number one U.S. decathlete. Oh, you in the told country. me about him. Yeah, he's uh, he's pretty special, and so he's gonna compete over there. And in, in the oh, Olympics he's competing. How yeah. is he working and training for the Olympics? Yeah, it's it's unbelievable, man. So when I hired him, you know, he was training for the Olympics, and I was like, well, how is this gonna work? Like, are you gonna like, you have to take time off to train? Like, what's you know, how does it work? And he goes, oh well, you know, if, you know, your hours are eight to five or whatever, and you know, I work out from five a.m. to seven a.m. and then from five a.m. to seven p.m. every day, so that works out great. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah me, me me too. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. and he does it he's like it's un, it's unbelievable his his ability to he's one of the he's god-given natural gifts right he's you know six six and you know looks the part um but his his worth work ethic and his discipline is is truly uh is truly special to watch um, we, even when i would have him you know, before the pandemic you know we would travel we'd go up to chicago or you know you know, on a, on a conference or a customer visit or something. And he, he brings this, uh, the shot put ball. He's got like a travel shot put ball that he brings with him. So he'll go like, you know, five in the morning, he'll go find some high school track to train on and go train with them in the afternoons. He'll go just, you know, to the high school and train with the track team. And, you know, of course they are just like, Oh my God, it's like a Celebrity yeah, I say that's something that is really cool about America, like the yeah. sports and how that's promoted. Um, I think there are very few countries that I've been to where you can just walk in and just there are incredible facilities to train. Um, I think, well, if I'm looking at where I live, like I used to live in Belgium and Netherlands, like maybe at big universities that have a lot of money, would you find like these amazing tracks? Um, yeah. But in America, I feel like, like every major high school would have it. Oh yeah, you go to um, high schools in Texas, and their facilities are as nice as the colleges, yeah. universities. I visited Duke University uh, like ten oh, yeah. years ago, uh, North Carolina and Raleigh, and uh, I mean, it's amazing, like beautiful. Yeah, we were there a couple years ago for a business conference and. Yeah, it's a special area. Well, I have to say, so Duke is amazing, but then once you get outside of the university, it's like, where am I? <laughs> <laughs> You're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, middle of nowhere, exactly. Because um, it was the first time I went away from the big cities in America. Um, or I think maybe afterwards I went once to Florida. But so I went from New York, took a bus um, to North Carolina to Duke, but they dropped me at like the main station at rally and then from there you still have to go to duke so i remember getting dropped there and then thinking this doesn't look like new york like this looks so different (laughs) nothing looks like new york except maybe you know hong kong or (laughs) have you been to hong kong no i haven't have you no uh i haven't but uh i'd be scared going now yeah, would, just because of what I see on TV, I don't know. Well, and, you know, uh, Matt Skelter was there during all that, and he was... During the pandemic. 
or uh, during their protests, the initial protests right before really? the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, he was there. based on that logic, uh, thingy was there during the Capitol thing. Uh, gun, did you see it? Gun, yeah, I saw. He was, he, uh, he was there afterwards, right? He was there afterwards. I think he was there during because I was watching oh, his uh, Facebook stories. All the, they always pop up, and he always like shares things about cryptocurrency. But then he was sharing about Washington, and I think he was there just before. I'm not sure if he was there during. I, sh I should probably get him on the podcast and catch up with him. Yeah. Um, but I actually was following his cryptocurrency Facebook stories, and I bought Bitcoin and made like I think like a thousand euros or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I wish I had bought it. He told me in Bali. I think it was Bali. He told he like, me. Yeah. He told me in Vegas, which was four years ago. If I had bought it back then. I would have been a millionaire, but yeah. Yeah, I just put, you know, like $10,000 in it when he told me about it. I was like, oh, you're crazy. <laughs> Wait, you did buy it or not? No, I didn't buy okay. it. I completely missed it. But uh, what do you think now of what's happening with this whole Reddit and GameStop thing? It's interesting, you know. Um, it's I the first time something like that is happening. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, you look at it, these... Any kind of discount um, trading platform like that, like they have in their user agreements, where they can, you know, stop trading if they think it's going to uh, really Robinhood had that in their agreement. I'm sure, right? So you know, essentially, they can they put it in their brokerage right into agreement that hey, like they can they can stop trading on any stock if they think it's going to negatively impact their firm, right? And I'm sure Robinhood had it. All of them have it, right? And that's like, I think uh, what they're afraid of is like all these people are going to end up with these, you know, big equity positions and get stuck holding the bag, right? Um, it seems that with Robinhood, though, it's maybe a little bit different, right? Where, you know, their, their main customer is, you know, these hedge funds in New York who were just getting their ass handed to them. And so on these, on these short sales. So it was it was really interesting how it was very dangerous one day and they had to stop trading on the stock, you know, to protect, you know, the the retail investor. But then that night, the hedge funds were able to get out of their shorts. Yeah. And the ne the next day, it's like okay, it's safe to trade again. <laughs> I thought so, it was so weird. Uh, yeah. It just it didn't make sense because the thing that bothered me is maybe okay, there's an argument to have had if uh, it does affect like Robinhood, right? But then they just like crash the app or something or you can't buy or sell. The issue was that what Robinhood did is they cut off everybody from buying more. So but people could selling. only sell. And that's they intentionally crashed the I don't understand how that's legal. Yeah, like, I, don't, I was I, like, I don't know. But I, it seems okay. Like there's an legal. argument for okay, just stop buying and selling, and then somehow spin some story. Because that happens, right? Whenever there's a trigger in the market, like if it crashes thirty percent, the entire market will stop. I think yes. it's like 10, 10 minutes or something, right? It's so that people can like calm down and you don't lose your head. Yeah, right? exactly. Those triggers happen. But I've never seen it. It's it's like you you intentionally crash those stocks. Yeah, I've never seen an, like somebody decide, okay, you can sell but not buy. I thought that was so weird. But also, like what I was saying is like, who are you selling if if you can't buy it? Who is buying it when you sell it? And you but you can't sell it. Who's buying it when you sell it? Well, 
everybody that's not on Robinhood, which is pretty much everybody that isn't. Yeah. Well, actually, nobody will be buying them, which is good for Robinhood because they're crashing GameStop and everybody else. Yeah. It was just so weird. I actually, because I, I wanted to get the full perspective because I don't like just judging, like being left, right, whatever. So I actually uh, saw an interview with the CEO of Robinhood to hear his argument. Like, what was the reason for that? Um, and there's a point in the interview where the guy, I think it was a CNBC interview, and the interviewer asked the guy, oh, it sounds like it's a liquidity issue because that's how he was argumenting it. Uh, and the CEO literally stops the interviewer and says, no, no, it's not a liquidity issue. We have enough money. So then I was yeah, just... Yeah, yeah, You say there's a liquidity issue and everybody pulls out their money. <laughs> it, that's embarrassing it was to so say. so weird. But, um, but it it's was interesting. an interesting development. Yeah, because you hear like, uh, I don't know if you, you follow Dave Portnoy with Barstool Sports. No. He's, he's a pretty uh, outspoken guy. He's, he's really funny. Um, but it also, he's during the, during the pandemic, he started this uh, uh, Dave's day trading gang or whatever. And he's just an amateur trader. But he's got, he got real big into the GameStop. And, you know, he's, he's basically, he made a good point. He said, you know, that day, you know, the CEO of Robinhood, right, woke up, got that. They're saying that he got a phone call from the hedge funds in New York to tell him, like, hey, like, you've got to restrict the trading. But he made a decision to stop, to stop trading and basically screw his entire client base knowing that this is going to be the, this is going to be the end of Robinhood. Like, these guys are not going to come back. Like, Did you hear what is, happened? So apparently everybody went on the App Store, like 100,000 people, and gave it a one-star review. And then, oh, you didn't hear this? Okay, no. so everybody did, had 100,000 plus one-star reviews. And Google, uh, the Google App Store deleted all of the one-star reviews to not negatively impact Robinhood because it was such a popular app. <laughs> you didn't hear this? No, That's, didn't hear crazy. That's crazy. I was literally thinking like, they're literally screwing over the little guy. These people who are dependent on the little guy are screwing us over. Like that does not make sense. <laughs> I'm uh, lately started to follow this uh, like uh, American Indian guy, like Hamat, like this billionaire guy. I don't know if you know him, uh, the CEO of Social Capital or something like that. Um, really straight to the point guy. He was on an interview with, I don't know who, uh, and the interviewer, it's a news organization. The interviewer is asking him like, what um, what are we supposed to do? Are we like supposed to let the airlines go bankrupt? And this guy literally just answers. He's like a billionaire. He literally just answers, yes, <laughs> they're mismanaged. They shouldn't be survived. <laughs> like screw them. <laughs> like that. And then, but what he did add to that is like when a company like that goes bankrupt, the employees aren't the ones that usually lose jobs or anything. They just get like replaced and get placed in other jobs and stuff like that. They don't lose that much money. The ones that lose all the money are all the hedge funds and all the investors, the ones that yeah. are billionaires. So I found that a very interesting perspective on, on the whole situation um, because it kind of shows like this is the first time in history, I think, where the little guy uh, through Robinhood could potentially actually do some damage to these hedge funds. But the reaction to that is so fascinating to watch. Like I did it's not like they just that. They just changed the rules. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyways, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Crazy interesting. 
Anyways, I think we've been talking for an hour and a half already, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe I want um, I want to roll out a red carpet to you. Tell the people where they can find you, what you've been up to lately, um, some cool stuff to share, things you're learning. Oh sure, yeah. Um, you know, you can follow me on Instagram. I don't I don't post a lot but uh, yeah I, I do I do a little bit um, I think it's like ryan.t.trip um, yeah but uh, you know I'm up in Chicago now so we've been oh, yeah you moved we moved yeah you you yeah. living next to Michael Jordan already <laughs> I haven't seen it I haven't seen uh, his highness um or his heiress, but uh, yeah, it's 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 good. We uh, we moved up here. We kind of took our time getting up here, and so this we got here this about a week and a half ago, and it has just dumped snow on us. We're supposed to get like ten inches of snow today. Really? But you have dogs, right? You have two dogs. We have one dog. Yeah. Oh, one dog. So how is uh how is snow like for a dog? Because you were in the south, and now you're in the north, like in Chicago. Yeah. It's interesting. He like will uh, kind of look at it, and he like prances, like hops in it. <laughs> he's a, a he's like an eighty five pound dog, and he looks ridiculous. It's it's pretty funny how he has interacted with it. I use a lot of tips uh, because when we got a puppy, uh, obviously we texted. Uh, we used a lot of tips uh, that you gave me, and uh, really nice. Uh, he doesn't bark. Uh, so we've been getting a lot of compliments from other people who babysit him and everything. Uh, we've been using some like discipline things that you said, like positive reinforcement as well. Um, he still has the sheets above his like uh, bench. Uh, he likes like his little cage uh, type of like he has an open gate, but um, he likes uh, having his own room. Yeah. So yeah. Appreciate it. We've been getting a lot of compliments on him. Obviously, he's a small dog, uh, ours, but uh, yeah, a lot of tips help, so thanks. <laughs> you should become Ryan the Dog Whisperer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's cool. We're, uh, we're up here for a little bit. We're going to go back down south uh, in maybe a couple weeks. Kind of miss Fe February is just so rough up here as far as the cold. And so we're going to go back down to the beach. Maybe uh, head over to Cancun for a little bit. How isn't Cancun? Cancun is that America? No. No, it's uh, Mexico. So how? I actually, uh, I've actually gotten the vaccine. What? How? Oh yeah. Uh, through um, where you know transportation is you know one C. You got the vaccine, and we've been talking for two hours, and you never <laughs> mentioned it. Like what? Tell me more, please. Like. How, what, how did you get it so early and which vaccine did you get? Uh, so I got the Moderna vaccine. Um, you know, here they're, they're rolling out that they've been doing over a million vaccines a day since about seven days before the inauguration. Um, so, that, you know, there's tons and tons of vaccines going out. Chicago has done a really good job with the rollout. Um, so you've yeah. had the first one or the second one already? So I've had the first one. I still haven't had my booster shot yet. How how was it? Weeks. Any side effects? It was fine. Right, so they you know they gave me the shot. I didn't feel the, the needle going in. Like that's fine. Took a matter. Just took a few seconds, really, maybe less than a minute. 
Um, then they, they they ask you to wait in your car for 15 minutes before you drive home just to make sure nothing happens. I was fine. Um, had a little bit of a, like a, I wouldn't even say it's a head cold. You, you know, just you know, stuffy nose a little bit that day. But the next morning was fine. The only thing though is, is I got in this shoulder, and the pain in that shoulder just where I got the shot for like two days. I couldn't lift my arm above my head. Really? Yeah. But Why I do you think, think that is? You know, that happens a lot with shots. Like the flu shot, you know, you get sore too. It, it, not typically not that bit, that bad, but it really wasn't. It wasn't I'm making it sound worse than it was, but that was the only thing that I noticed. Nice. Have you had the, the virus or not? No, or not that I'm aware of. You know, we, and we, we got tested. We did, you know, Redwood did a really good job of, uh, you know, providing, you know, acquiring and providing tests. Were you doing those PCR tests, the one where they stuffed the tube, like the thing down All the way up into oh. your brain. Horrible. <laughs> it wasn't so bad. It just like, it, it tickled. It just like, it was just... Tickled. Like, I had to do like it. Like 10 minutes afterwards. I had to do it. I had, But I, I'm a pussy when it comes to those things. So I, the day before, obviously super worried, couldn't sleep. Because <laughs> I saw all the videos and everybody's like, yeah, it goes into your brain and stuff. So obviously <laughs> I watch too much YouTube. Um, but so I did the test and I was like ready for, um, for the one that goes through your nose and then apparently it goes all the way to your, and it touches your, well, it touched my tongue at least. Uh, yeah, I, first, but somehow I had biology in school, but I had completely blanked that that thing goes like complete, like that you can somehow stuff something through your nose and touch your tongue. I didn't know that. But, uh, I guess that makes sense. Like if you just breathe in through your nose, you can yeah, exactly. through your mouth. So. But so <laughs> that one actually wasn't that bad. And that was the one I was worried about. Um, but then they stuffed the one in my throat and they had to do it like three times because I just I couldn't because um, they go really deep. Um, but, but I have to say once I did it, it wasn't as bad anymore. But I haven't done it since then, though. So I'm really excited for the vaccine. My uh, my girlfriend's mom got the vaccine, but she's a nurse. Yeah, yeah. So we've you know especially in Chicago, they've completed the phase one, which was you know the elderly and the healthcare, and moved on to kind of phase one. I think in the Netherlands they didn't even like they are barely in phase one. Like, wow. it's weird. Germany's having huge issues with logistics as well. I found out. Um, so apparently, what they did in Germany in um, in the region where my girlfriend's family lives, um, they they put the the vaccine center in like some place in the middle of nowhere, instead of putting it next to um, a city that has like a proper uh, train station where the public transport can just easily access it. So it's either you have a car and you can reach that small city, or you just don't get a vaccine. So stuff like that's been happening all over Europe. It's pretty weird. And now the Netherlands is all over the news because of all the riots as well. So, yeah, I, I don't even notice. I don't watch the news. So what's going on over there? I don't, I don't watch uh, the news. I watch YouTube and then the news just bombards me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, no, so we've had uh, the prime minister invoked a curfew. So after nine o'clock until four thirty in the morning, you're not allowed to walk outside. Um, and so on the day, on the first day, what happened is you had all those like, I think they were mostly youth, um, 
that were just like rebelling and everything and so at nine o'clock it was like like a full-on like riot and um they actually like start breaking into shops uh and i the other day i was watching a video from uh, a news organization called like they're they do mostly like uh youtube videos and they're funny and entertaining i wouldn't really call them news but they're called uh pow news pow news and the guy was uh doing uh, a piece on one of the jewelry stores from a lady uh here in rotterdam uh they got broken into completely ruined everything stolen like fifty thousand euros worth of uh jewelry um and this lady was from iraq and she fled iraq because of the war to go live in the netherlands and so in this piece it's like she's literally like crying and it's like breaking my heart and this guy this interviewer who's usually just really funny like you can see it's breaking his heart as well and i'm just like thinking how sad like this lady left iraq for like the netherlands <laughs> like the netherlands and she had a worse experience here than there uh, but that's, that's pretty much what's happening in the Netherlands now. Uh, so why why are they rioting? Just because of the curfew. Like there's literally no other reason. It's just like the because curfew. the curfew is because of the uh, because uh, the no so COVID? what's been happening is the numbers have like been going crazy over Christmas, but then now they've been steadily going down. But apparently the British uh, variation of the Corona uh, virus entered the Netherlands somehow, um, and. Uh, like they have these like formulas and apparently like if you're above one that's like really bad uh so for the normal virus we're under one i think and for the british variant which spreads much faster we were like at 1.3 or something which is mm. a really bad thing because it spreads really fast um and so the, the prime minister said well because it's so bad we decided to do a curfew because like we need to combat it and so obviously, you know, a lot of people are scientists nowadays, so they're like, uh, they start writing. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I get it. I get it on the one side, because like people literally don't have jobs, don't have money. Although I do have to say, uh, you know, the government did pass a lot of bills and support and money in case you couldn't afford it. Um, it's not perfect, but it's definitely, I would say, one of the better countries uh, in the world. Oh, no, yeah, that's good. I think, you know, we had that issue too, right? Where, you know, you had everybody, it was two weeks to slow the spread, to slow the spread. Everybody was going to go home for two weeks. And that turned into longer, right? Yeah. But at some point, it, it should have opened back up. It just, the, it never ended. It was just like this yeah. perpetual shutdown, yeah. right? Over the, over the summer and into the fall, you should have opened back up. That way, when it got cold in the winter and you needed to lock down again, people would have been more willing to do it and understanding, but you like, it, you had this perpetual lockdown that never was going to end. And when you said, you know, then, you know, the cases started getting worse because it's cold weather people are back indoors all the time and it makes sense. But, you know, by that time people were just like, you know, we're over it. And so you had a, you had, you had a lot of, you have a lot, you still do have a lot of resistance. I mean, I would argue that even during the summer, they tried to open it up here, but there were people that just did not listen to the guidelines. And it's always like the few that ruin it for everybody else. Um, and like the cases never went down. And then it's just, uh, I I'm, can't wait till the vaccine uh, rolls out. I, uh, I saw an interview with Fauci um, and he said that uh, 
apparently like it's just gonna get way worse before it gets better so that's the sad part of course uh, but <laughs> yeah yeah we just gotta sit it out now so but that's what's happening in the netherlands now the curfew we're hoping like in a couple of weeks it'll be lifted although the way things are and the riots and everything honestly like i don't like we're planning our business strategy and everything and i pretty much told my team like after summer i genuinely think with the, how everything is going we see how screwed up logistically everybody is like these are these governments are not tech startups they're not ltx that knows exactly how to do like a speedboat <laughs> things um i mean you just see that they're screwing up left and right and it's i guess it's okay they're a big organization you know i've seen corporates grow up the same way and they do fix it eventually it's just it takes a while and and so i told my team just you know september i think you know best case june probably september and mo and it's even possible that if the vaccine suddenly doesn't cover the british variant man don't want to say it but you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think what they uh they're hoping the johnson and johnson vaccine was going to right. cover that but i think they got some disappointing news so the markets crashed like two three hundred points the other day uh, i did see that yeah it went down i think it was on thursday or friday it went down 200 i think 200 points and they're saying it's because the little bit of disappointing news on the johnson and johnson vaccine really but i heard yeah. that the pfizer vaccine would cover the british i heard the pfizer and the moderna both covered the british one so i don't know it's just so hard to keep up with but I have to say, like, the positive news is uh, they really got it going. And they got, like, good vaccines going, ones that were based on, like, solid research that on the first uh, SARS-CoV uh, vaccine that they had work working. So I'm genuinely impressed in how in less than a year they got these vaccines. Yeah, that's something, you know, Trump kind of ruined it for himself right there at the very end. But the, his vaccine plan and the, and the rollout was very very impressive really because i heard it was bad well, yeah well i mean i heard that apparently the new person that is in charge for the logistics of rolling out the vaccine uh looked at the trump plan and apparently there was like almost no plan it was all big. well that's that's all political right so they came out and they said oh there's no plan we've got to build it from scratch and then dr fauci is like no there's a plan it's the one you're implementing oh, really? it's the okay. one it's the, you know the, it's the one that's been delivering a million vaccines a day okay, so for a good while. News. <laughs> that's good news. <laughs> but I mean, you know, still yeah. a million a day is in America like three hundred sixty-five million people or something. That's like yeah. a year worth of vaccines. Yeah, but you know, th there's a point where you reach herd immunity as well, right? And I don't know all the science to that, but um, I think you know they're they're trying to vaccinate the elderly and the healthcare workers first right and then they're moving into the people who are you know not maybe at risk but at greatest risk of spreading the virus and so at some point you, you do reach herd immunity i don't know what that number is but honestly i think they should be vaccinating the children that go to school i think I, I think that they're talking about that as well that would make more sense than people who can just work at home yeah 
But anyways, we can talk about this stuff for hours. It has nothing to do with the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's a, it's a good conversation to have, especially because it is relevant to what we do as entrepreneurs. And um, I'm, uh, I'm happy for you. I'm happy how uh, everything went down with the acquisition, that you guys are doing something fun now. You're obviously moved to Chicago. Enjoy the snow. We only had one day of snow here, so I've been missing it. Do you I assume you all get... Where, on the, where is the Netherlands on the line? The Netherlands is like... Cold weather? Uh, well, it's... Netherlands is like, I don't know. In relation it gets pretty to cold. America? It gets, pretty, it gets pretty cold, right? Like, like in terms of like... It's like on the same level as New York. Yeah. I, I Man, my geography is bad. But I'm assuming yes. Because the weather is quite similar to New York. Um, although we haven't had snow in like three years here oh, wow. so we had this one day snow like a couple of weeks ago and that was awesome so but we haven't had snow in like three or four years that's interesting Par- like paris gets snow right maybe you know, kinda... maybe it's because um we're closer to the beach here like the beach is like 20 oh, minutes uh, right. away from here so maybe it's just a milder climate because when you go to like germany it's like pretty much what you said about chicago just full of snow yeah. Yeah, Chicago's Chicago's great because it's got the you know it's on the one of the Great Lakes, so it's got the beaches. Really, I yeah, didn't know that. And then, yeah, then then it's got snow and it's good. It has all the seasons. <laughs> and it has the Chicago Bulls, although Michael Jordan's not there anymore. Did you see that yes. documentary from Michael Jordan? It was so cool. I loved it. I I grew up in the MJ era. You know, I played basketball in college, and yeah. Anyways. Now we have to wrap up. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. I'll definitely invite you again. Hopefully people love the, some of the first part of the podcast <laughs> and uh, hopefully the second part as well. Uh, but any last words you want to say? Yeah, no, uh, appreciate you having me on. This is fun. Love to do it again. Yeah, I can't wait till uh, we can meet up in person again. If you like this episode you can check out our most recent one here and if you haven't already make sure you click here to subscribe and see the next one but if you're interested in more tips and tricks then make sure to join our facebook group where you can find thousands of like-minded people and you get direct access and support to any business question from the entire startup funding event team